This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults with zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability, no system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome back to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. This is episode number four. It's amazing that we've already uh, made it this far. Special shout out to everybody at The Ringer. Special shout out to everybody at Spotify for giving me this amazing opportunity. We've had some great guests so far. I always say the Bakari Sellers Podcast is better than your favorite podcast. How about that? We've had uh, Deshaun Watson, Alan Convana, when we were talking about black quarterbacks and NASCAR. We've had Tiffany Cross and her new book and her great this past weekend hosting job of AM Joy on MSNBC. Uh, we've had Vince Carter and Antoine Jameson. And today's episode is really dope. We get newsy. We talk about the issues of the day with Jason Johnson, who is uh, one of my favorite commentators over at MSNBC. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about how we've how far we've come post uh, George Floyd. Uh, we had real momentum for policing reform, but it feels like to me that we've lost steam. You know, the president weighed in with an executive order on policing, and we have a saying down south that uh, when something is worthless, it's about as good as an ashtray on a motorcycle. Um, and that's about how good the president's executive order was. It did absolutely nothing. And then we had the Justice and Policing Act that didn't go anywhere in the Senate. And a lot of mayors, with key exceptions like Frank Scott in Little Rock and London Breed in San Francisco, are opting for commissions to study the issue and to rename streets instead of basic reforms. I really don't want you to rename any more streets. And you can also revisit police budgets, which should both be really straightforward. Banning chokeholds are easy. But how many cities have real citizen oversight of police departments? How many mayors have come out and made clear that they won't accept police union contracts that make accountability virtually impossible? And how many Senate and congressional candidates that are asking for our vote are telling you what they'll do to make policing fairer. I'm sympathetic to calls to defund the police because I know that it doesn't mean to eliminate the police, but to reevaluate how much we spend on public safety compared to other community priorities and reallocate those resources as necessary. And while we know that Republicans are in the back pockets of police unions, Democrats seem to be all over the map. What I'm all for is us taking a hard look at our practices and have reforms where we need them. We need the police. We want the police. They have a role to play. And so let's not get so carried away that we allow sloganeering uh, to uh, hijack this movement. So, yes, reallocate resources, reform policing, no to defund the police. Just to be clear, though, you're not saying that there's nothing that takes its place. You're not saying Absolutely that if a woman, not. Is, a, I think a woman is really raped, where the conversation okay. is going wrong, because no one is saying that the community is not going to be kept safe. No one is saying crimes will not be investigated. No one is saying that we are not going to have proper response when community members are in danger. What we are saying is the current infrastructure that exists as policing in our city um, should not exist anymore. And we can't go about creating a different process with the same infrastructure in place. And so dismantling it and then looking at what funding priorities should look like as we um, uh, reimagine a new way forward uh, is what needs to happen. We just heard this clip of, of Congressman Clyburn, my congressman, who was, I can say, uh, intellectually dishonest on the issue of defunding the police. 
and Ilhan Omar, who was on the opposite end of the spectrum. Very few people are asking for police departments to be abolished. So anyone acting as if defunding the police means eliminating the police is being disingenuous and they should be called out for it. Rising homicides don't help some of the muddled messaging. But I need my party to lead. So I'll try to make some things clear here so that we can focus on the task at hand. Number one, there's no such thing as black-on-black crime. Please chill out with that bullshit. It's just crime. Anytime someone responds to calls to end police violence with anything involving black-on-black crime, they're simply not serious. Two, what black people want is fair and equitable policing. We aren't going to choose between fair policing and safety. We want both, and we won't stop protesting until we get both. Three, if someone wants to be your mayor and they can't articulate both how they hold police accountable and provide meaningful oversight while also telling you what the future of public safety should look like in their city, they shouldn't be your mayor. Same goes for anyone else asking for your vote in 2020. Read the room and don't miss the moment. Safety and reform aren't mutually exclusive, so we should stop talking about these issues like they are. Like everything else, we can't expect Republicans to lead, but Democrats are afraid of their own shadows. We deserve better, and we also have to demand better. The last thing that I'll say is I want to talk about Kanye West in my opening. I'm just playing with you. The last thing I'll say is Breonna Taylor's murderers still have not been arrested. The ball has been in the Kentucky General Daniel Cameron's court for weeks now. His lovely engagement photo shoot notwithstanding, I need everyone here to call the Kentucky Attorney General Criminal Investigations hotline at 866-524-3672 and demand that officers Brett Hankinson, Jonathan Mattingly, and Miles Cosgrove be arrested and charged. Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. So welcome to the fourth episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I'm so excited about this because we get to get deep in some of the current topics and things that are going on today. I have my good friend Jason Johnson joining me, and I got to start, Jason, by saying that our last episode, we had Vince Carter and Antoine Jameson. The episode before that, we had Tiffany Cross, and she wanted me to let you know that this probably was going to be a letdown. <laughs> no. <laughs> I always catch strays from Tim. It doesn't matter where I am or what the circumstances are. I'm going to give her the shameless plug. I'm interviewing her for, for her book tomorrow. So I'm I'm used to this kind of violence. This is the kind of black-on-black violence we're also standing against. See, there we go. I know, I know. And shout out to Tiffany Cross, whose book came out. She had her book birthday this week. Please make sure you go out and get Say It Louder. I always keep it behind me. So, Jason, when we jump into these things, the first thing I always like to know is where did Jason come from? Uh, your current role as a professor at Morgan State and a political contributor uh, from a career in politics, which includes some work in my home state of South Carolina. Yes. We're going to definitely get into that. I always think it's helpful for listeners to know how our guests got to the point where they see them on television, are quoted in articles and writing books and become a leading voice like you are now. Walk me through the arc of your career. So, you know, it's, it's funny. It started, um, ironically, when I was a kid. So my dad was in the military. I'm an 80s baby. I grew up in the 80s. We were living overseas when the Cold War was still going on. So I always tell people the first time I ever paid attention to politics was like, like I, I remember like one of my earliest memories is like 84 and like the debates with Reagan and Mondale and like Reagan is like, blah, blah, blah. You know, if the Russians want to go to war, if they want to come, you know, roll up, pull up, pull up. And like we were <laughs> in Germany. <laughs> I was a kid. I remember seeing flatbed trucks going by my elementary school uh, with missiles on them. Like that's how I grew up living overseas. So like, I was always aware of politics at an early age, like war and fighting and the Cold War, all that stuff was very real to me. So that that sort of stuck with me uh, from the time I was a kid. Uh, I, you know, I, I ran for office in high school. It's, it's something funny. I'm putting in my book like the, the, the first race that I ever really won in high school was class president when I was ninth grade. And nobody thought I was going to win. Because <laughs> literally, this is this is good campaign strategy, Bakari. I know because you've run for office. So, like the two most popular white girls in my school were running for class president in ninth grade. Everybody thought they were going to win. One's name was Sarah Betts, who I'm still Facebook friends with. The other girl's name I don't remember. So they were running, <laughs> and and so my teacher, my science teacher, this black woman named Mrs. Hassan, who wore a hijab, right? She was like, Jason, you should run for city council, student council. I was like, Ah, then I got to vote for me. I'm a nerd. I'm this, that, I'm just a regular dude. And so she's like, No, you should run. So even my friends didn't believe me. 
And what happened is four days before election day, the two popular white girls got into this knockdown drag out fight and second lunch over who should be president. It was like a viral video in the nineties. <laughs> like and everybody in the high school was talking about it. So by the time we got the third lunch, they were like, we're going to vote for you, Jason. Cause, cause you're not, you're not like Sarah. You're not like the other girl. And I ended up winning in a landslide. So they split the vote. So I, I learned early on, don't be an ass and you can do well. Enough. <laughs> that should be the title of your book. Right. <laughs> don't be an ass. I, I, yeah. I would definitely buy that. Look, talk to me about your experiences working in South Carolina, particularly your relationship. I, I go back and I just reread your article again last week that you wrote back in 2015 yeah. uh, about Clemente Pinckney and how your experience in South Carolina gave you the kind of insight into black voters that we miss so often right yeah. now. Your voice. And I don't let me, I don't know how far I should go in this. You can but go as far as you want. <laughs> we, I definitely, uh, you know, you not being on cable television right now, you not being on MSNBC, and it's hard for me to say that because being on CNN, it's like you don't want to get in another family's business, but you not being there, I think, is a void, and we are, we're truly missing you, especially during one of the most pivotal elections of our time. And so whatever's going on over there at MSNBC, I hope they pull you back from the shadows because talking about this issue, you had this insight into black voters that, other people do not have. And talk to me about your experiences in South Carolina and how it cultivates that, that, so, that uh, insight. I, I got to tell the audience, of course, everybody, they know you and they know your work at a reality TV show. Um, you definitely want to read, if you haven't already, My Vanishing Country. And one of the things that, that me and McCarty really have bonded over is I didn't even realize until I read that chapter <laughs> how much our lives overlapped Correct. during that time period. So I was a campaign manager for Clem Pinckney. Um, soon after I got out of school, before I went to work in politics in Maryland, and it was one of the most life-changing experiences of my life. One, I was down in the low country. I was learning about politics and organizing in communities where the median income in the county at that point was $14,000 a year, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, having any sort of political expression was still considered a radical idea in a community where I was told by white voters that I was a problem because I was looking them in the eye and where I was, I, even though I've never lived in a city in my life, I was the city boy. Clem used to say like you and your city boy accent, right? (laughs) I'm like the most bougie suburbanite kid you could ever meet. Um, But I learned a lot about campaigning. I learned a lot about organizing um, from Clem. He was the hometown boy made good. And um, you know, one of the, even, even simple rhetorical things, like if you're trying to raise money and Bakari, you probably know about this better than I do. He said, look, when you're trying to raise money, you don't just ask people for money. He's like, I come from a poor community. They'll give exactly. you maybe $2 out of their pocket. He's like, you say things like, hey, can each one of you guys dedicate yourselves to buy me two road signs? Yes. And that way they'll each give you 25 bucks. And, I, you know, so you learn a lot of campaign strategy down there. And I actually used that uh, later on when I worked on my doctorate. You know, I always felt like what actually happens on the ground in campaigns is oftentimes overlooked. So that was my dissertation work at Chapel Hill. That's informed a lot of the work I do on television. And as we're in this sort of Black Lives Matter revolutionary era, which is what this is going to be looked at in 35 years, um, you know, when Clem was killed by Dylan Roof in 2015, I've said in a lot of different outlets that at this point, most of us, most black people in America are probably only one or two degrees of separation from a hashtag. Correct. Most of us know someone who may not be famous, and sometimes we do, who have been killed by, by white violence, by police violence, by state-sponsored violence. And that also, you know, it informs what I say, what I do, and, 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 and the memories that I draw with me from the low country in South Carolina when I talk. So, and I want to just go back because you, you knew Clem and I knew Clem, and I always tell people that Clem went out the way that, you know, we, we know him to be. He, he let this straggly white boy that he didn't know come to mm-hmm. his Bible study church. Yeah. And they sat in a circle, the 12 of them. And Clem didn't sit this white boy on the other side of the church. He sat him right by him. And they prayed an entire hour. And during their benediction or uh, go home prayer, as we would sometimes call it when I was growing up in church, uh, when they bowed their heads, he shot Clem and, and, and then proceeded to shoot eight others. And Clem was right. the only one to make it to the hospital. But that, that type of letting this straggly white boy into his church just epitomized not only his big Christian spirit, but who he was, don't you think? Yeah, Clem was, you know, it's always kind of hard for me. I, I, I remember saying at the time, 
I was actually at CNN at the time in, in 2015. And I said, it's like the difference between talking about 9-11 and having gone through it. Yes. Um, he was one of the kindest, warmest people that you've ever met in your life. With this insanely deep voice. Yeah, yeah. With this Jeffrey Holder <laughs> voice. Like, you just expected him to be like Darth Vader's voice or something. But he was, he was so kind and he was so gentle. And like, as someone who's a bit of a political cynic and a realist sometimes, he was, he was just such a warm person. And I, I, you know, it's in the article that you read, but, you know, I remember just going out, we were driving once and we're going by this field. And I was like, what's that? Is that like pollen or something? He's laughing at me in this big, huge bass voice. And he's like, Jason, that's cotton. <laughs> I had never seen cotton before. Man, we got it, man. Come on. I got cotton behind the house. Next thing I'm going to have to get you. <laughs> I was a black man who had never seen cotton. Have you ever picked it before? So he stops the car and I was like, bro, can I, can I go pick the cotton? And he's like, why? Why do you want to pick cotton? I said, because I can stop when I want to. Can we, can we, can we go pick cotton? <laughs> so he stops the car and I went out and, and I actually picked cotton for a while. He just laughed at me the whole time. Man, and I listen, so I, we, we had it behind our house and people would come over. We, you city boys and folks from up north would come right. over. It, it would be nothing like it. They'd be like, can we go? Can we go pick some? And I'm like, yeah, go ahead. go." And you go out there and you're pulling it apart. You got, the seat, you got the seat on the inside. Then you realize how light it is. And these women were picking 300 and 400 pounds of it right. with thorns on it. And you're yes. like, how in the hell did you do this? I mean, it, it's remarkable. And not only that, but the cotton gin is one of the most inefficient modern well, of inventions in the history of man. It leaves so much cotton in the field. But Right, right. <laughs> it, it, was, it was so, like, it hurts your back. It hurts your fingers. It hurts your knees. You're pricking your fingers. You're pulling this stuff out of, like, a hard Venus flytrap. Yes. Uh, to get it out there. And, it, and, and it's the kind of thing, I always tell people this, when I talk about that experience, I've done a little bit of farm work, right? I've bailed hay before, I've you know pulled crops, whatever, pulled weeds. But picking cotton has got to be one of the most mind-numbingly frustrating and infuriating, yeah, arduous things that you can ever do. And the fact that our people were doing that from sunup to sunset, the fact that the sisters would give birth at four o'clock in the morning and be in the field by six, and do 10 hour days of picking up this kind of work. It's an amazing testament to, to what black people have had to suffer in this country and still accomplish all that we have. So let's, let's talk about something because it was further down on my list to, to get to. Um, I have a lot of stuff I want to get to you, but we're, we're, we are talking about reconciling and have a reckoning of our country's history right now. And we're talking about those moments of slavery. Hell, I was just on TV with Rick Santorum not long ago, we'll have Kaya throw the, <laughs> throw the clip in right here of, of me and Rick having this discussion about Confederate monuments, slavery, the president's playing footsie with the Confederacy, his tweets. I mean, he went for like the racist uh, trifecta where he called it the China virus. He asked for Bubba Wallace to apologize. He talks about landing on the side of the Confederacy. And then all of a sudden, Rick Santorum made this really weird, illogical argument that he was pro-life and uh, he couldn't reconcile people who would have abortions just like I can't reconcile uh, George Washington and owning slaves. Just one, one final point on that is, look, I, I consider right now as someone who considers himself pro-life and I can say the same thing about politicians. I have a hard time reconciling people who are allowing people to be killed in, in the womb. And, but you know what? I do. And, and, and we all do. That's and we all have to reconcile slavery. that, there, that, that's that, not, that we have differences about, and abortion about are not how we treat other human beings. Slavery and abortion are not the same, same thing. thing. I mean, no, I that's, it is. no, no, that, that's yes. like, that's like apples. That's like apples and bobcats. No, there, there's not. nothing the same about slavery and, and abortion. And let's not contort ourselves and have it. Let's actually stay on track. I mean, if if there is a mother who is about to die or if she is raped or the victim of incest and she makes a decision, Rick, that's not the same thing as being drug that's over not, here. That's, against, that's less against, than one percent of your, abortions you described. Your your it was one of the more surreal moments I've ever had on TV. But just talk about this moment that we're in. And, you know, taking down statues of Confederate generals, individuals that own slaves, is it a slippery slope? How far do we go? What's your opinion of the movement and the moment you know, that we're in? I don't care if it's a slippery slope. I don't care if it's a slip and slide. I want to go as far <laughs> down this road as possible. Tear it all down. Tear it all down. They are just stone statues. 
And people who are mad about tearing down stone statues are really just trying to cover up the fact that they don't like black folk. It ain't about history. I'm a college professor. I know all about history. It's not about history. It's not about politics. It's about the fact that you don't like black people and you don't like black people taking down things that they don't like. Guess what? We used to have statues and monuments to King George. We used to have statues and monuments to all sorts of other people who were in this country. And we got rid of them. Why? Because when the people say, I'm tired of this imagery and I'm tired of this messaging, it's got to come down. Now, I know some people will argue, my goodness, this is dangerous. This is so terrible. You're tearing these things down. I'm old enough to remember all the images of Iraqis pulling down statues of Saddam Hussein. And we were saying Hercules, Hercules in America. Right. So why is everybody so mad now? It, it is, it's such a bunch of disingenuous arguments about the statues. But it's the kind of thing that Donald Trump will latch on to. It's the kind of thing that people who don't really know history will latch on to. And the truth of the matter is half the times these statues are just, you know, they're, they're obstructing your view of the state capitol. Uh, you can find something else. <laughs> I mean, we still have we still have uh, Pitchfork Ben Tillman and John C. Calhoun in, in South Carolina. You know, they used to call John C. Calhoun John C. Killicoon. Um, so you, so you, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, we we still have this history. You talked about the fact that you teach at uh, the Morgan State University. Yes, and you actually work briefly at South Carolina State. Let me ask yeah. you a question: Why an HBCU first, and why don't you think more Black academics with a profile like yours teach at HBCUs? So there's a couple of reasons. So one, a little bit about my background. So I went to UVA undergrad, which is crazy because I, see, I thought to, you would have gone to an HBCU. You, you don't even have, we got to get you to a good I, yeah. homecoming or something, brother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me. The things I did not learn, the things that I did not learn. And, and here's the thing, McCarty, we were, we were, and this is the case with you, brother, and a lot of other people. I was half a step from being classmates with like you and Tiff, you know, who, who yeah. went to Clark for a minute because the first college I got into was Morehouse. Yep. That's the first place I got into. And they offered me some money, but I they had offered you money. They offered me money. I know. See, that's, rare. that's rare. That's <laughs> rare right there. <laughs> you, you, you were smart. You were one of them smarty arts. I, I, I was smart. <laughs> I was impotent. Uh, <laughs> so so I, that was the first place that I got into. And my parents are so excited. There's a, there's a picture of me in a Morehouse you know, thing and everything else like that. But for some reason at that point, because my parents are like kind of first generation college people. They didn't have friends who were Greek. We, I didn't really know anything about the HBCU experience except from mm. a different world. And Atlanta well, seemed yeah. far away. So I ended up choosing UVA, even though I had never visited campus uh, until the day I, until literally showing up the first day of class. Did Julian teach you anything? Did you, did you take any of his classes? I did take a class with Julian Bond. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this. But I had really lousy class attendance. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a fascinating guy. And, and he actually, he had lunch with my freshman dorm, right? Julian buys lunch with my freshman dorm. The things you don't realize how special they are, you know, when you're a kid. He's sitting down and the white kids are going nuts. And here's, you know, for anybody in the audience who doesn't know Julian, we got to look this guy up. He's one of the smoothest, coolest. I mean, yeah. you know, Atlanta politics, SNCC politics. So uh, you know, uh, a random footnote that I'll insert here that I talked about in the book and nobody really picked up on it. But I do articulate that if, if John Lewis would have run a cleaner campaign in that race mm -hmm. for Congress, then Julian yeah. Bond would have been the United States congressman from the fifth congressional district. I do believe it is in Georgia. That yeah. race was a knockdown drag out. It was a race between uh, varying factions of the civil rights movement. And John Lewis challenged Julian Bond to a, a piss test. Uh, on, on TV, which Julian didn't take kindly to, uh, and John Lewis went ahead and 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 skated out of there, but but became the United States Congressman. But go ahead. Well, it, yeah, I mean, Julian has he is this amazing. The guy was on Saturday Night Live. Like, yes, civil rights activists were on Saturday Night Live, and I remember like you know I I, I took his classes. I enjoyed my time uh, at, at UVA. I met a lot of great people. Um, John Flowers, who's one of the producers at MSNBC, Tara Dowdell, who was on The Apprentice and everything. Like, I went to school with people who, who I now work with at UVA. It was a great place to go, even though most people only know it for a terrorist attack in 2017. Then I got my doctorate from Chapel Hill. And interestingly enough, my application was about wanting to learn about campaigns more based on my experiences from working with Clint. Yeah. So... I had a PWI experience to get all of my education. But here's a couple of reasons why I went to an HBCU. Number one, they treat you better. And I know <laughs> lots of people are going to like it, but it's true. They do. 
you can deal with all sorts of nonsense and drama at any job that you go to, right? But one thing about an HBCU is any nonsense and drama you deal with there, you know it ain't because you're black. <laughs> it's just because they don't like you. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so I, I, I fact, fact check boys. true. That we're gonna <laughs> fact check that. That is true. Okay, it's absolutely true. I got friends at Howard. I got friends at John C. Smith. I got friends everywhere. But but the other reason is this objectively, and your question about because this also goes to say athletes going to HBCUs. Why are more prominent African American professors not at HBCUs? Well, there's a couple reasons. Number one, a lot of times they don't get paid as well. Right. And two, it depends on where you end up. So like, uh, you know, friend, colleague, Jelani Cobb, Jelani was at uh, Spelman for a while. Now I think he's at Columbia's at some school in New York. Um, many times HBCUs do not have the money. They do not have the funding yeah. to pay people competitively. But what has happened in the last couple of years is as more and more African-American students are choosing HBCUs again, not just the famous ones like the AUC, but choosing all sorts of other ones, um, they've been able to pay people more. And honestly, uh, you, you deal with a lot less drama in getting tenure. Your, your work and your research is respected in a lot of ways that PWIs give you a lot more trouble for. One of the things you brought up was the fact that we have uh, uh, McCore Maker, who is now, he's a five-star uh, athlete, seven-foot center that can, he's smooth as all hell, that's going to mm-hmm. Howard University. Do you expect to see a lot more of those things happen? Is, is Morgan State in line to get a prime athlete? Are people going to change the movement in this fashion as well? Young people like Mikey right. Williams or others, for example? Well, yeah. Like, Morgan, I think, has like six or seven uh, NFL Hall of Famers. You know, because back until the 70s and the early 80s, Correct. if you were black, and a lot of times you did come South out Carolina, of it. South Carolina stays the same way. Yeah, if you were yes. black, you all. So this isn't this isn't new, th- no. this movement, but we are kind of going back to this time. And right. I think that when you're talking about I think all of this stuff goes hand in hand because the money that Howard's going to bring in from yes. McCore Maker is going to actually elevate every other program they have on campus to bring some of you smart black professors back home. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and where we can actually see step shows that are having to go across town. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so let's get into some polling real quick let's get into some polling i tend to ignore uh national polls but the president's approval ratings are at historic lows the swing state polling looks good but a lot of folks particularly black folks don't trust the polling i don't trust the polling i got on national tv and said hillary clinton was gonna win 330 electoral votes and i was made out to be a liar i still have ptsd from 2016 as a political scientist though what do you make of the recent string of positive polling for vice president biden well, uh, I've said this on the air and I said, these polls ain't loyal, right? You can't, you cannot, <laughs> you can't trust polling this far out, right? It's not a good idea, but this is what I can say in my area of expertise. And thank you for mentioning that. It's not just I have a doctorate in political science. My area of expertise is campaign management. Like that's actually like what I do. And I tell people that your national polls aren't nearly as important as your state polls and state polls aren't reliable. Right. Because they don't happen as often. So CNN, MSNBC, Fox, they're going to poll nationally every other week, basically. But can you trust the Michigan poll? Can you trust uh, the, the, the Wisconsin poll? Can you trust the Pennsylvania poll? So I would say this. Structurally, everything has been in place for any Democrat with a pulse to beat Donald Trump in 2020. I mean, he, he got he, he lost the popular vote by three million in 2016. He got wiped out in 2018. The economy was going to slow down even before the pandemic. But now you have a pandemic. You have national protests for Black Lives Matter that are actually popular amongst whites and independents. Right. Actually polling at over 50 percent for whites and independents. It took us seven years to get people to say Black Lives Matter. But we're here now. And and a couple of people being murdered on on national television. Um, But so he is in really, really, really difficult shape for reelection. And Donald Trump will not get reelected unless he cheats. Regardless of, I mean, like, that's the so only way he can win. But you saw him go after Bubba Wallace. He keeps calling it the China virus. I mean, mm-hmm. have we officially reached the smash and grab phase of this campaign where the president just simply doesn't give a fuck and is catering to the worst elements of us? When did he ever? <laughs> I mean, I don't, like, like, the guy, like, he hates black people. Like, like and, 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 I, and I'm not being entirely glib when I'm saying this. Donald Trump's entire campaign from talking about Mexican rapists and everything else like that, it doesn't matter if it's what Donald Trump feels in his heart. 
What matters is how Donald Trump actually speaks and what kinds of people he promotes. This is a guy who at one point said he didn't even know who David Duke was and now tweets out people who are saying white power, right? Yes. There is no reason to believe that Donald Trump actually cares about the fate of African-American people in this country. And his campaign has doubled down on this idea that attacking black people and attacking immigrants and attacking Muslims will be enough to move his base in critical places. And I would argue that structurally, because of the Electoral College, that might work, but it is unlikely because he has lost a significant percentage of the white vote. I'm going to make this prediction, Bakari, right now. Uh-oh. Dun, dun, dun. Biden, yeah, I'm, I'm tossing it out there. I'm tossing it out there. This is my hot take. Um, Don't tell Joe me you Biden, think Joe Biden is going to win the white vote for the, uh, as a Democrat for the first time since like 1964, 68? He's not going to win the white vote, but I think that Joe Biden will probably get the highest percentage. I, I think he might get 40% of the white vote. He won't get Obama's numbers in 08, but if he gets 40%, 40.5% of the white vote, which is highly possible this year, it's a sweep. No, he, that means you win. That means you win like Missouri, Indiana, yeah. Iowa. You pick up around the edges. Georgia's competitive. Yeah. That's what that means. So, yeah. but let me, let me ask you this. And, and because, because you're in higher education, I have to ask you about something that's trending right now. And I don't think a lot of people realize how disastrous the president's decision to force international students to leave schools if their schools go online only for higher education. Talk us yeah. through that. Do you think the reopening Jeez, in the fall and sports in the fall are the new fault line for Republicans as they try to kill us? I, I got to tell you, and this is so, so, so critical. What the Trump administration has done to higher education is just, it's been apocalyptic. Even, even before this, the difficulties that they've made for international students, Morgan has a large number of international students from the continent and from the Middle East. Uh, when I was at a small liberal arts college in Ohio, about 10% of the population was international. International students are the lifeblood of American universities. And I know yes. a lot of people don't realize that, but... One, it's soft diplomacy, right? Like the kids who come here from abroad and build relationships, they go back home to France and they go back home to Namibia and they go back home to Saudi Arabia and they have American friends and they become politicians and lawyers and whatever. And they have a different view of our country. Yes. On a more practical level, oftentimes international students will come here and they're full pay either because of their parents' wealth or an international scholarship. So the full scholarships that they pay subsidize American students who may be low income. So for Trump to say that if you're an international student and your school goes virtual this fall because of the pandemic, you have to leave the country, there will be hundreds of thousands of international students who just basically either have to drop out of school or two will leave the country and never come back. It's terrible and racist. Well, we, we know it's racist. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at Ugg.com. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. 
With the Power's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. So let, let's let's shift gears real quick. Uh, any thoughts on Kanye West? I, I am someone who... So this is why I think your voice is important and why, I, you know, in my personal opinion, MSNBC is missing out. Forbes magazine sent their like senior content editor to interview Kanye West for this new article that, that just recently came out and where he was just in complete and utter, utter lunacy. I have a theory about Kanye West. I say that Kanye West is what happens when Negroes don't read, period. <laughs> that is my... That is my theory on Kanye West. Um, and he's an avid, self-proclaimed self, uh, non-reader, and you can tell. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But what, what about Kanye 2020? I mean, I'm really somebody who's not going to give not going to give it any life until he files his first FEC piece of paperwork. Exactly. But what does this mean? And for those, it's crazy because, like, he had a full conversation about siphoning off the black vote. And there are going to be people who are listening and watching who are like, Kanye's going to siphon off the black vote. And I'm like, where does that come from? Like, no, he's not. Joe Biden no. just beat a bunch of Negroes, right, for the yeah. to, be, to win the primary. Yeah. So where does this come from? And with your insight, tell me about Kanye 2020 or whatever the fuck this is. So I'm, I'm going to say something bold here. This is all Obama's fault, right? <laughs> this actually, is, you know, this is, this is somewhat Obama's fault. Because when he called yeah. him a, a jackass, Kanye West lost his shit. There you go. There you go. Like, and remember... Trump is running in part because Obama made fun of him as a correspondence dinner. This is all Barack Obama's, Obama's fault. Exactly. I know. It's Obama's smack talking that leads <laughs> us to be in this kind of trouble. Um, but on a more fundamental level, what happened is when Barack Obama got elected in 2008, you had a lot of people in this country and a lot of conservative white men and people with that mindset who were like, wait a minute, if the guy with the paper thin resume, you know, and only two years in the Senate can get elected at, in a landslide, well, then why the heck can't I run, right? So that leads to all the sort of crazies that we saw in 2012. That leads to Donald Trump. And it leads to somebody like Kanye. I mean, celebrities were going to start running because they saw Obama. They didn't respect that this guy was actually an intelligent man and a college professor and everything else like that. They just saw this black guy get famous and they assumed, why not me? Yeah. And so Kanye running, look, I don't think, I'm, I'm like you you know, to, to quote one of his albums, let's see how his rate late, late registration goes, right? Because unless he fills out the paperwork, he's not, he's not even going to get on the ballot. And, and I don't know from both his music and his business and his behavior over the last two or three years, I don't know that Kanye West has the discipline, let alone the organization to do what it needs to be done to even get on the ballot. Well, so wait a minute. I, no, wait, you just, so you remind somebody who doesn't have discipline and organization Oh, they're now the president of the United States. There you go. So, uh, I don't know. I just, it's hard for me to take Kanye seriously when his two advisors are Kim Kardashian and Elon Musk. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Evil just, Iron Man and his wife. Yeah, that's just that 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 doesn't that doesn't go far. Uh, Senator Duckworth recently refused to say that Vice President Biden should choose a black woman as his VP, and Senator Warren recently declined to say that the Vice President should choose a woman of color. In the moment we're in, where Black America is experiencing two public health crises deadly policing and the coronavirus, do you think that nominating anyone other than a black woman would be missing this moment? So I'm, I'm going to explain it like this. So Bakari, you, you told me you've been married for five years, right? Five years this year. Five years. I so think, like, imagine. I think I'm right. I pray that I'm right on that. <laughs> you're right. You're going to have to edit. <laughs> <laughs> so like, imagine it, we're, we're in July. Imagine you tell your wife, Hey, honey, I'm going to get you a car for Christmas, right? So six months from now, it's not really a surprise when you get her a car. I mean, she's still going to like it. She's going to be happy. Oh, my God, it's so sweet. But, like, you lost your ability to really have a big moment because you already told her what you were going to do. Joe Biden said last August that he was going to pick a black woman. No, he, he said he, a woman. He said a woman. He didn't say he said black woman for Supreme Court and just a woman as vice president. Everybody who I talked to in his campaign <laughs> was like, Biden was saying that they sent me the links and quotes. Biden's like, I'm picking a black lady. That's why he kept okay, talking about true. Michelle Obama, Stacey Abrams. Biden's going to pick a black woman. Once he said, I'm picking a black woman, 
And this is going to get to Duckworth and more. Once he said, I'm picking a black woman, he cut down the list to only about four or five people anyway. Correct. And, and that's why he's in the position that he's in now. So, you know, <laughs> I have a I have a theory that his final two choices are Elizabeth Warren or, well, actually, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. So, but yes. what happens if Joe Biden selects Elizabeth Warren or Tammy Duckworth? So I, I don't think it's going to be Duckworth. Here's what happens if he picks Elizabeth Warren. Black media has to pretend that they're mad for like a week and then everybody's happy. Because let's be <laughs> honest. <laughs> let's be honest. Elizabeth have that Warren at- is very popular with a lot of very influential black women in activist circles and political circles right. and in media circles. And they're going to have to pretend for a couple minutes that they're mad. <laughs> it wasn't Senator Harris. And then everybody's going to fall in line because Warren's politics are actually more in line with a lot of the progressive left in the black community than Senator Harris. They just, they just are right. The other thing about Elizabeth Warren is there's no inherent drawback to her as a selection. If black people can get behind it. What I mean by that is I mean, who hates Elizabeth Warren other than, you know, maybe the, the, you know, some of the Sanders supporters, like there's nothing wrong with her. You get with Harris And you have this huge, huge issue of criminal justice. And yes, it's not going to be fairly depicted, but that is immediately I I got a piece coming out on the grill uh, tomorrow talking about, you know, can Joe Biden and and Kamala Harris, can they take a punch? Because Trump is coming right after them both on criminal justice. And that's going to be a real problem in this Black Lives Matter protest movement that you've got the two Democrats on the ticket who both have questionable records when it comes to the criminal justice. I, I, I think Harris is going to get it because Biden doesn't want to risk angering black people. But I don't know that I think that Senator Harris doesn't come with some pitfalls that you don't have with Elizabeth Warren. So let me ask you just a question about Biden's governing then, because we've seen over the past week, the Lincoln Project and all of these folk are coming out and just doing great work, work that oh, Democrats yeah. wish we'd been doing for a long period of time. And he is picking up all of these Republican endorsements, 100 or 1,000 folk who used to work for, you know, George W. Bush and all of these other things. Should progressives or anyone left of center be concerned that Biden will govern with this crowd in mind? Or is it just purely a ploy to beat Trump? I mean, have you listened to the guy? He spent most of last year saying that I'm going to be able to work with these people. And I don't know why he thinks that, because there's no indicator that he's going to be able to work with Mitch McConnell. But here's what I think is key. Joe Biden has put forth a platform that's actually more progressive than Obama's in 08, just because of where the country happens to be. I mean, like to even come up with versions of Medicare for all, to even to to even have a president say the words defund the police, even though we know he won't. And so I think that Joe Biden will probably govern more to the left than people think. Um, He is a man who is willing to learn. And the other thing is this. I think the most critical thing that Joe Biden could do once he gets into office I, when Obama got elected in 08, the only thing I wanted him to do was restore my civil liberties that were taken from Bush. And he did about a half, half stepping job on that. What I want from the Biden presidency is once he gets into office, his number one task for Senator Kamala Harris, which I think she is perfectly suited to do, is to root out every single element of Trumpism and white nationalism that has been burrowed into our government over the last four years. And I think Harris will be better at that and coming up with the legal ways to keep those people out than anybody else that he can pick. So, you know, Warren is, of course, going to say, well, it doesn't have to be a woman of color. And Tammy Duckworth is going to say it doesn't have to be a black woman because they're still trying to get their way in. Yeah. Once we knew that it wasn't going to be Susan Rice and it wasn't going to be Stacey Abrams, it really did just boil down to, to Harris. You know, I'm a I'm I'm biased. I'm a huge Kamala Harris fan. Yes, yes you are. I actually think that the number one <laughs> yes, I am. The, the the number one task for Joe Biden needs to be to transform the courts in this country because I don't yes. think people truly understand the damage that Donald Trump has done by putting in 200 young, 95% of them are white, conservative, extra conservative. Most of them are not qualified jurists on these not federal benches, which are transforming the landscape of our country. Before I let you go, I mean, there's so much that we could talk about. We could probably sit here for uh, two hours, but before I let you go, I want to- We haven't even gotten to sports. <laughs> I know, I know. Before, before I let you go, we're in the midst of a national conversation on policing, but what also seems to be a spike in gun crime. We had 87 people shot in Chicago last weekend, 20 shot and five fatalities in Atlanta last weekend. The policing reform debate has fallen apart in Washington, and mayors, often progressive Democrats, are trying to thread the needle between responding to violent crime, policing reform, 
and not completely alienating law enforcement. Who's leading on policing police reform, in your opinion, and how should they balance the need for reform and accountability with the very real desire for gun control and more active policing around gun crime? See, this is one of those hard high school debate questions. Um, so, yeah, so here's I, what I'll say. Because everybody, I mean, people want to, the first thing people say is, you know, your, your friends Tucker, they're your friends, your friends Tucker and everybody else on the right, they want to throw out black on black crime. And you know when you say that, you ain't serious about nothing. Right. Because there's no such no. thing as black on black crime. It's only called no, no. crime, right? right. <laughs> um, so how do we, how do these mayors, how do Keisha and, and Randall Wolfen and Frank Scott and uh, Vi Lows and Mariel Bowser. How do these and Lightfoot? Yeah, Lightfoot. So, how do they balance what's going on? So a couple things. And this is this this is fits with what we were talking about before. Like my background. So I, you know, I got a Black Panther mashup shirt. I got my Green Lantern. I I, I grew up sort of. I'm a comic book fan. I believe in superheroes, notions of truth, justice, and the American way. Right. And one of the things that's cool about superheroes is they don't just sort of fight crime. Um, but their goal is to usually make the world a better place, maybe take down some of the systems that lead to crime to begin with. What these mayors have to figure out is that you cannot keep reforming a broken system. Stopping crime, the ways that we have seen as political scientists and sociologists to stop crime, it doesn't tend to have much of a correlation with more police. In fact, right. more police doesn't lead to less crime. What leads to less crime is more schools smaller class sizes, job opportunities, healthcare opportunities, you know, all sorts of other kinds of summer issues. job programs, which summer is why we talk about program. defund the police. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's my thing. You want to solve crime, invest in the things that keep people from getting involved in crime. The other thing is this, and, I, and I've taken a long time to come to this. I've written about it in the Grio, and, and, and I think, and, and there has to be a humility with these conversations. These are complicated issues, but I'm in favor of abolishing the police and replacing them with a, a task force of public servants who can do healthcare intervention, mental health intervention, drug intervention, uh, community service work, and a force police that can still be used in case of violent situations. We've got to abolish current policing and replace it with something else. I don't care if you call it the Watchmen, I don't care if you call it you know, the Justice League, you gotta replace it. And I think these mayors will be moving in the right direction when you're not just shuffling money back and forth, because guess what happens when you defund the police. And this isn't criticizing to fund the police movement, but I can take $5 million out of the budget this year and it's only as good until the next next election. They can go right back. That's true. You got to do something fundamentally different. And I, I think mayors who are willing to take that risk now is the time. And I think that'll be the most effective long-term solution to some of the criminal justice problems. So are we going to see you back on MSNBC anytime soon? I know we're talking, everybody's talking about cancel culture and white progressives <laughs> and all of these things right now, but <laughs> You know, you you made comments that uh, that about white progressives and Bernie supporters and your experiences with them, just your experiences with them online. And, you know, we talk about cancel culture and here we are. So what's next for Jason on that front? You know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this and I, I say this in all humility. We have an awesome responsibility when we do work on air. We have an incredible responsibility. And uh, you take responsibility for the things you say. You, you say you're sorry if you make mistakes and then you move on. Um, and that is, is what I have attempted to do and look forward to being a part uh, of public discourse as we go forward. But I will also say this. I think when the story of the 2020 election is told, one of the things that we're going to have to understand is that bad faith outrage cannot be used to silence key voices. Correct. And what I mean by that is you look at what happened several years ago with the Republicans and say like Al Franken, right? The Republicans bullied uh, the Democratic Party and they said, hey, you know, you got to get rid of Al Franken, you got to get rid of Al Franken and Democrats did it. And then five minutes later, the Republicans turned around and they, what they do? They voted for Donald Trump. And they looked at the Democrats and they're like, I can't believe you fell for that. Oh my God, you thought we were serious? We have a lot of that happening sometimes on the on, on the left in this country where people will sort of be bullied with bad faith arguments. So uh, so I say all that to say, uh, you know, I, I, I work at MSNBC. I write for the GRIO. I'm faculty at Morgan State University. I look forward to being a part of these discussions going forward. And I think we need to remember we need to remember that the men and women who do the kind of work that we do are committed to telling the truth as far as they understand. And that if we can't, we can't we can do. have a good body politic, if people are silenced, 
whenever somebody hears something that's inconvenient. Amen to that. I mean, we all we do is speak our truth and try to speak our truth to power. Is uh, are the Lakers going to win this NBA Finals? I mean, that's kind of where I wanted to. I mean, assuming they're healthy enough. <laughs> Basically, that's I, what I'm it is. Kawhi to play five straight games. So I think the Lakers may pull it off. That's my hey, hope. Listen, that I'm just. I mean, listen. If LeBron is in the NBA Finals, yes, he's having everybody play with with COVID, whether or not they want to. <laughs> <laughs> he will play in a hazmat suit. This he is, will. This is, this is it. This is it. This is it. This he he and, feels it right now. And here's I got. I tell you, this is this is also my my big theory here, right? If we weren't in this sort of pandemic moment, right, which which we are, we're going to be dealing with for a long time. And God bless those people who are out there working to keep us keep us safe and alive. I will say this, you know, we we, we just saw the last dance with Michael Jordan. The last dance hits much different if LeBron gets his fourth ring this year. He gets that fourth ring. We don't look at the last dance the same way. That, that's that's what I'm looking forward to. I need LeBron to get that fourth ring so that all my that, that my Gen Z nephew, my 15 year old nephew, stops telling me he thinks Jordan's a better player. He wasn't even so alive this, when Jordan was playing. I'm gonna just tell you my my philosophy. He LeBron wants to get the five rings. So this whole Kobe thing is kaput. In mm-hmm. order for him to get the five, he has to win four this year. Because yeah. he doesn't have that much more left in his tank. So anyway, that's my philosophy. You know, we're rotating guests on Thursday, so we hope to have you back in the, in the next four or five weeks or so. I'm glad yeah. to have you here at the Bukari Sellers Podcast. It's always a pleasure, Jason. Have a good day. And I, you were a much better interview than Tiffany Cross. Any hands down. <laughs> Thank you. That's the part we need to edit and put out on Twitter. I was a better interview than Tiffany. I'm going to send that to her directly. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Have a good day now. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.